Kafka, New Orleans, the OARs, and the KT Boundary. You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. The Emperor, so they say, has sent a message directly from his deathbed to you alone, his pathetic subject, a tiny shadow that has taken refuge at the furthest distance from the Imperial Sun. He ordered the Herald to kneel down beside his, beth- his bed and whispered the message in his ear. He thought it was so important that he had the Herald speak it back to him. He confirmed the accuracy of the verbal message by nodding his head. And in front of the entire crowd of those, w- of those witnessing his death, all the obstructing walls have been broken down and all the great ones of his empire are standing in a circle on the broad and high-soaring flights of stairs. In front of all of them, he dispatched his herald. The messenger starts off at once, a powerful, tireless man. Sticking one arm out and then the other, he makes his way through the crowd. He runs into resistance. He points to his breast, where there is a sign of the sun, so he moves forward easily, unlike anyone else. But the crowd is huge. Its dwelling places are infinite. If there were an open field, how he would fly along, and you would soon hear the marvelous pounding of his fist on your door. But instead of that, how futile are all his efforts. He is still forcing his way through the private rooms of the innermost palace. Never will he win his way through, and if he did manage that, nothing would ever have been achieved. He would have to fight his way down the steps, and if he could have managed to do that, nothing still would have been achieved. He would... He would have to stride through the courtyards, and after the courtyards through the second palace encircling the first, and then again through stairs and courtyards, and then once again a palace, and so on for thousands of years. And if he finally burst through the outermost door, but that can never ever happen, the royal capital city, the center of the world, is still there in front of him, piled high and full of sediment. No one pushes his way through here, certainly not someone with a message from a dead man. But you sit at your window and dream of that message when evening comes. Reverse the flow of Kafka's fable and you have the problem of knowledge transfer, KT. You, the humble researcher beyond the outer fringe of power, have a message of great importance for the Emperor. The message is crystal clear, and the Emperor needs and would very much want to hear it. But it is so crowded is the public discourse with other issues, other priorities, other people's messages, that it is impossible for your message to get through. Human rationality is bounded, and your message is outside the boundary, which brings us to New Orleans. From the perspective of K.T., what is most interesting about the drowning of New Orleans is not the disaster itself, nor the slow or fumbling response, nor even the gathering of commercial vultures as the event reaches the end of its media life. Rather, it is that the disaster was so predictable and so widely and accurately predicted. From sophisticated computer simulations and engineering studies to articles in high-end magazines, Scientific American, National Geographic, the message was spelled out unambiguously in letters ten feet tall. Nor was that message at all difficult to understand. The various interacting natural and human processes that made New Orleans a disaster waiting to happen may be complex and subtle, but the central points do not require advanced training. Much of New Orleans is below sea level, some nearly 20 feet below. The city has survived behind levees that were known to be inadequate to withstand a major hurricane. The Gulf of Mexico is a major hurricane track. When, not if, a hurricane hit, the city would be drowned. There would be great loss of life, massive disruption of lives, and colossal property damage. One did. It was, and there was. 
If the ultimate test of good science is successful prediction, then the analysis of the New Orleans predic predicament was very good science. The KT was a complete and utter failure. But that failure cannot be ch charged to the messenger or to the message. The message was clear, and the heralds tried their best. But the streets of the capital, the courtyards, and the corridors of the palace, and especially the throne room, were thronged, jammed tight with people and their uncountable multiple multitudes of concerns. Whatever message receptor sites there might have been were already occupied. The herald and his portentous message could not get through. Now let's narrow the focus and consider another clear and unambiguous message. Orders of magnitude less dramatic than the destruction of a city, but nonetheless with the powerful implications for KT and healthcare. Over a decade ago, a research team at the Ottawa Civic Hospital generated and began to disseminate the Ottawa Ankle Rules, the OARS. These constituted a rigorously developed and extensively tested algorithm for diagnosing ankle injuries in the emergency department that permits cl clinicians to rule out fractures through a simple set of careful observations. Radiography, the standard response to ankle injury, was, in a high proportion of presenting cases, simply unnecessary. Injured ankles make up a significant share of ED workload. Universal implementation of these rules could thus reduce radiology loads and costs, as well as saving patient and clinician time. Perhaps more important, the development of such a simple and successful clinical decision rule, CDR, held out the prospect of a much broader array of similar CDRs, a program that the Ottawa team have subsequently, subsequently taken up with vigor. And the result? These rules are transferring the approach to the assessment of these injuries and, after training, can be used by clinicians from a range of backgrounds, including medical, nursing, and paramedic staff, in both hospital and community settings. But in 1999, Cameron and Naylor told a different story from Ontario. Although participants gave highly positive appraisals of the Ottawa ankle rules and the educational sessions, there was no reduction in the use of ankle radiography for the 10 hospitals that received the educational sessions. Even when a dissemination strategy is well received and involves a widely accepted clinical guideline, the impact on behavior in clinical practice may be small. Or indeed, nil. So, the recently published study of uptake by the Ottawa group should not be a total surprise. Their survey of a sample of ED physicians found that while 99.2% reported familiarity with OARs, 82.4% had not reviewed the rules in months or years, and only 30.9% were able to correctly remember the components of the rule. Well, it is just as well that only 42.2% reported basing their decisions to the order radiography primarily on the rule, though it is that exactly for the purpose of which OARs were designed and are very effective. 89.6% reported applying OARs, very rarely consulting memory aids, always or most of the time, but most applied these rules in combination with other clinical observations. Unfortunately, these observations were non-rule factors that were not related to the presence of a fracture, and factors that no more predictive value over and above the rule. These findings essentially repeat the message of Jonathan Lomas and his colleagues. Do practice guidelines guide practice? Well, no. Lomas surveyed Ontario clinicians to determine their responses to the SOGC guidelines for cesarean section. Guidelines motivated by rates of intervention that were generally agreed to be excessive. Then they matched responses with 
actual practice as reflected in OHIP billing. Briefly, a majority of respondents said that they knew of the guidelines, agreed with them, and followed them in practice. But in fact, they did not. Inappropriate interventions continued unabated. The point of this excursion into CDRs is not to bash ED clinicians, but to suggest a parallel between these two egregious examples from radically different settings of complete failure of knowledge transfer. In both cases, the message was simple, clear, and about as solidly grounded in evidence and analysis that one could hope. Both messages were consequential and were widely disseminated within the relevant communities, and their, and their implications for what is to be done were direct and unambiguous. Nothing happened. We now have a nice new Canadian Journal of Health Policy. KT is both part of its purpose and part of its subject matter, but Kafka's story implies that simply generating sound research findings with clear policy implications and disseminating them widely may nonetheless achieve nothing. A bit of a nihilist Kafka was, but that's one way to avoid disappointment. Health researchers' messages, of course, address not one emperor, but several different policymaker communities. The experience with the OARs, however, underlines heavily a point made long ago by Lomas, that every clinician is a policymaker. Clinical policy, the sum and resultant of day-to-day -day decisions, is at least as significant for health system performance as is the high policy of politicians, senior bureaucrats, and administrators, and even occasionally judges. Official policies can have a powerful impact on the context of clinical policy, but their efforts, for good or ill, ultimately flow through the clinical decisions. Have we implicitly written off direct communication with clinicians as not our department, or perhaps wholly ineffective in the absence of substantial contextual change? Do we then bet our chips solely on researching non-clinicians? At the journal's launch, though, Paul Jacobson argued rather vigorously that our journal will not reach even those official policymakers who are really critical for effective KT. A broadened conversation with health administrators and bureaucrats remains within a shared framework of understanding. Our messages may be clear, sound, and well understood within that community, but the real levers of power are elsewhere, in the hands of politicians and senior finance officials who are outside our conversation. Their absence was powerfully illustrated by Lavie in s surveying the penetration within federal and provincial bureaucracies of current concepts of population health. Those ideas were widely disseminated and, not, and had been taken up across health, social services, and labor ministries, but not in finance. What could fiscal policy possibly have to do with population health? Some thought that the survey had, sent them, had been sent to them in error. Lavie's findings reinforced Kafka's point. The failure of KT was not traceable to a confused message or inarticulate messengers. People in other ministries got the message, with no apparent difficulty, and members of finance departments are surely, on average, no less intelligent. Why has nothing gotten through? Kafka's hordes have, I think, in their analogy to the powerful and elaborately articulated framework of understanding peculiar to economics and predominant in finance departments and the business community generally, such frameworks provide a filter for information, defining what is and particularly what is not to be attended to. Conventional economic analysis, especially as practiced in North America, provides off-the-shelf explanations generated from a priori theory for both the determinants of health and the dynamics of healthcare systems. These typically incorporate a little, if any, knowledge of the actual subject matter and are correspondingly grossed 
oversimplified when not just plain wrong. Findings from health services research solidly rooted in the real world of health and health care do not fit in the predetermined conceptual categories of the conventional economic framework. No receptor sites, so in a real sense, cannot be heard. They can be heard by those working within alternative, much looser, and more flexible frameworks of understanding, but they are generally farther from the throne. Worse, the crowd in the throne room includes some, small in numbers perhaps, but very heavily resourced, with a strong economic interest in blocking or distorting the messages from research and substituting self-serving myths. The pharmaceutical industry is the most notorious example, but private insurers have an obvious interest in undermining universal public coverage. No private payment, no private insurance. Commercial diagnostic enterprises can be indifferent to OAR-type decision rules only so long as they have no effect. Imagine the impact on costs and on health policy generally if access to all MRI had to be justified by some explicit evidence-based prospect of improved patient outcomes. All cost savings are threats to someone's income. For publicly traded corporations, a reduction in expected future earnings translates directly into reduced share values. Remember Nortel? Capital markets are brutally unforgiving. Demand creates its own supply, and these commercial interests have supported the growth of the specialized private disinformation industry. Liars for hire would be impolite. Call them marketers by other means to promote public policies furthering those corporate interests and to deflect or discredit threatening research findings. All perfectly normal in a for-profit world. These activities have little or no penetration among the health research community but have very effective in exploiting in the intellectual vulnerability of those preconditioned to hear their selective, simplistic, and grossly distorted messages. The Chalui decision provides a spectacular example, but any randomly selected out product of standard economics training should serve as well. The Cretaceous Tertiary Boundary refers not to knowledge transfer but to a thin layer of iridium-enriched clay marking a discon discontinuity between those ge geological periods. It is generally interpreted as the consequence of a really bad day in the Yucatan. The crossing of this KT boundary was a decisive break in evolutionary history, but the age of mammals, previously a bunch of evolutionary no-hopers, would have been impossible without the elimination of the dinosaurs. While they remain in place, unexamined habits of thought and behavior fed and reinforced by entrenched economic interests, KT will be a dubious battle. Robert G. Evans is the Professor of Economics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C. This has been Longwoods Radio. Thanks for listening.